I have a bizarre thing that happens sometimes on a Sunday morning. I suddenly get loads of new insights into the passage that I wish would come on Wednesday night or Thursday night, but they seem to come on a Sunday morning. Um, it's good that they come, but it can make things all a wee bit frantic. Ephesians chapter 3. Previously in Ephesus, we have seen transformation in Acts 19 when Paul and the Holy Spirit showed up. We have seen what drives Paul is the immense spiritual blessings that are in Christ. We have seen that Paul prays with power at the end of chapter 1 and teaches us to do likewise. At the start of chapter 2, we saw that we were dead, but we've been made alive in Christ. And at the end of chapter 2, we saw that we were alienated. We were asylum seekers. We were separate from the family of God, but he has brought us near. He has made a new race of people on the earth, the church, the people of God united, uh, and a new temple in which his presence dwells. And today, uh, we're looking at mystery, love, and power. And I'm going to actually go through all of Ephesians 3 today, but I'm not going to linger that long uh, in the first half of Ephesians 3. Let me read from verse 1, just to get us going. Paul has this, he has this habit of digressing sometimes in his letters. He starts to go somewhere and then he wanders off. And one commentator actually suggests that after verse 1, his chain rattled. He was in prison writing this letter. And, and he, he was starting, in verse 1, he starts to pray and this commentator suggested there was a wee rattle of his chain and it reminded him of his own circumstance. And he went on to explain it before he gets to his prayer a bit later on. So verse 1 says, For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. And then he gets back to his prayer, and I'll just read it. For this reason, he's back to where he was in verse 1. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, bless this powerful portion of your word, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and drive this truth deep into our hearts. Cause it to live and pulsate within us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul's in prison. And he is in prison because he is preaching things that the Jews do not like. The Jewish religious leaders have a severe problem with what Paul is saying. Because what he is saying is that the gospel now includes the Gentiles. That they are now part of the promises of God, part of the people of God. And he talks about this mystery. Paul speaks about a mystery that has been revealed. And we sometimes, when we read the Bible or when we read anything, if we see the word mystery, we think that's a secret. We think that's something that we cannot know or that we might find out later. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's talking about something that previously was hidden and now has been revealed. It is not hidden anymore. The kingdom of God is not a secret society with little internal secrets that you only get to know if you've been around long enough. It's all out in the open, Paul says. A mystery has been made known to him by revelation that was not known to others prior to Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. And he says the mystery is this. He says that because of the gospel, because of Jesus, because of the cross... The Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Now, if you remember last week, there was a wall in the temple. And the Jews loved that wall, and the Gentiles hated that wall. Because on that wall, there was a sign saying, any Gentile who crosses this point will be executed. No trespassers. No one allowed in here unless they are Jewish, part of the nation of Israel. There was a hostility between those two peoples that we might be able to make modern, uh, you know, use modern illustrations to try to explain it. It was deep and it had existed for thousands of years and they hated each other. And the Jews did not want their temple defiled with Gentiles. They didn't want those people coming in to the presence of God. Think about Jonah. Whenever God said to Jonah, I want you to go and preach grace to the Ninevites. I want you to go and call them to repentance. You you see how far Jonah went to get away. He did not want the grace of God to come to those people. They were not God's people. They were Gentile people. And Jonah did not want them to experience grace and to experience repentance and forgiveness. And it's just like this in Paul's day. Paul is preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and the Jews don't like it. (laughs) Who is it that you know 
that if they started to walk with God, you'd have a problem with it. <laughs> you know, anyone you can think of in your sort of circle, uh, wider circle, maybe you work with someone and they're just not a nice person. And if God got hold of them and they started to access the promises and the grace of God, there might be just a wee something that would twig off inside you saying, you know, he doesn't deserve that. <laughs> she doesn't deserve that. Paul will have none of that. He will not allow barriers. He will not allow hostility. He will not allow people to withhold the gospel, the good news, and make it a little, you know, internal secret society. You know, you only get to know this if you're on the inside. He says, no. Jesus took that veil that looked like the sky that we talked about last week that was embroidered to look like the sky, and he ripped it apart. He says, everyone is welcome. Everyone now can access the presence of God. And Paul knows in verse 8, he knows his gifting and he knows his calling and he also knows humility. The way he describes himself, he says, I am less than the least of all God's people. There is not a sniff of arrogance about this man. I would say, given Jesus his place, after that, I'd say Paul is the greatest human being who ever lived. The more I read him and study him, I just think, wow, what an incredible man he was. But he describes himself as less than the least of all God's people. Elsewhere, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. He persecuted the church and he never forgot it. He never forgot it. God gave him a new heart and a new life, but he never forgot where he had come from. And even though he knows where he's come from and he knows who he is and he doesn't get carried away with his own importance, he knows the calling and the gifting of God. It says in verse 8, This grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles. I am nothing, but I am called. That's what Paul says. I'm nothing. My background was hard. My background was Pharisee. I was one of the people who loved that wall in the temple and loved looking down my nose at the Gentiles who stood on one side of that wall and would like to have gone further, but I didn't let them. I was one of those people. Hardline, religious, stay away. Stay away with your brokenness and your sin. Stay away. Paul was like that. But yet he knows I'm called. I've been given a grace. The word grace in Greek is the same as the word gift. He says, this is who I am, but this is what I'm called to. And I've been gifted for it. And I'm going to do it. Chains or no chains, opposition or no opposition, I will exercise the grace and the gift that God has given me. And I would challenge you to have that same posture. It's very easy in the church to have a false modesty, which can then not take responsibility for the gifts and the callings that God has given us. All of us have come from a place, probably, that we're not proud of. All of us have done things that we're not proud of. Even as we've walked with Jesus, we have still probably done many things that we're not proud of. But that doesn't mean that we take the calling of God and set it to one side. Church, rise up. Don't let the past, the background, whatever, stop you from receiving his call 
and doing what it is that he has called you to do. Paul knew his calling. And his calling was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain the mystery. To explain that to them. He had to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does that actually mean? What are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, he's already talked about them throughout the letter. You go back and you look at chapters 1 and chapter 2 and we read about resurrection from the death of sin. We read about the fact that we are enthroned with Christ in the heavenly places. Satan who dogs us and runs after us is under our feet in the heavenly places. We read about reconciliation with God, incorporation into this new humanity that we talked about last week, the end of hostility and division between us, access to the Father, membership of his household. Folks, that's good news. (laughs) That's good news. And once that got under Paul's skin, once Paul understood that, we read, as I said, when we did chapter one, we read about these things. These things are are the steam in Paul's engine. These truths, these blessings expand inside of him and create movement. And as he dwells on these things, he then gets momentum and he moves forward into his calling. Folks, when you realize that the good news is good, nothing will hold you back. Nothing will hold you back. You will not share Jesus with people in an embarrassed uh, way that you're slightly concerned about what might happen. Once you know that this is good news for every human being on earth, nothing will stop you. Nothing will stop you. That doesn't mean you get arrogant and you get in people's faces, but because you love every single person who is made in the image of God and you know this is good news for them, you keep going. And Paul knew what he was preaching, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he also had to make plain the mystery What is the mystery that he's talking about? Slow down just a little bit here, verse 10 and 11. Let me read it again. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember a Saturday at a church in Portadown, maybe maybe 10 years ago, there was a bunch of us spent a Saturday with Eugene, and he did a teaching with us entitled God's Eternal Purpose. And on that day, a love for the church was awakened in me that probably previous to that I didn't really have. God's eternal purpose. Just let that sit with you. What is God doing? What's he up to? Is he making it up as he goes along? Does he respond and and suddenly swing into action whenever something happens or goes wrong and he has to then fix it and tidy it up? Or does he have an eternal purpose that has never changed? Paul says he has. And his eternal purpose, we mentioned it last week as we talked about temples and we talked about multiplication and we talked about commission. His eternal purpose was that he would have a people on the earth for his name. A people who would show forth his character. A people through whom he could bless humanity. That's God's eternal purpose. That was the purpose in Genesis 1 and that is the purpose today. It has not changed. God wants a people. 
He wants a body for his son to express himself through. He wants a bride for his son. He wants a temple in which his presence can dwell. It has never changed. And God wants to make a declaration. If you look at verse 10, he wants to make his wisdom known. In fact, his wisdom is described as manifold wisdom. Literally, it means multicolored. It's the same word in the Greek Old Testament used to describe Joseph's coat. The multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God. God wants his wisdom to be made known. And where does he want it made known? It says in verse 10, he wants it made known in the heavenly realms. We've talked about this as we've gone through Ephesians. Paul doesn't, I think, mention this in any of his other letters. But in Ephesians, he talks about the heavenly realms, which is a place where God is where angels are, that we have access to, and that the devil also has access to. You get that from Ephesians as you look through the book as a whole. You realize that there's a a realm that he calls the heavenly realm where all of those players are and have access to. And God says, in that realm, I want to make a declaration of my wisdom. I want to make a declaration of my wisdom. And the way he does it is through us. Through the church. No other person, no other power has ever brought people together the way Jesus has. Multicultural, multiracial, multi-everything, multicolored, all people, big and small, old and young, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all people in one worldwide body. And God says, that's my wisdom. That's what I've always wanted, a people, a diverse people who will reflect my character on the earth. And it makes me think of a conversation that God had with Job or with Satan about Job. Way back in Job 1, nobody really knows when Job was written. Bizarre little book sitting there in the the middle of your Old Testament. Nobody is quite sure chronologically where does Job fit in. We don't really know. But we get a glimpse into the heavenly realms in Job 1. And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And he starts to talk about Job's righteousness and his goodness. And he's an upright man and he turns his way, he turns his back on evil. Well, now in the heavenly realms, God does not say, have you seen my servant Job? He says, have you seen my church? That's what he declares to Satan. Have you seen my church? Have you seen what I have done? You tried to divide people. In Genesis 3, you tried to divide people using sin. You tried to separate people from me. In Genesis 11, you tried to divide people by by causing them to think that they could access me by building a tower and doing things in their own strength. You tried to divide. Your Your whole operation is around slander and division. Have you seen my church, Satan? Have you seen my church? And folks, when we operate as the church, as we should, we send a message to the enemy about what God has done. And when we operate as the church, as we should not, when we allow division, and when we bicker and squabble with each other, the declaration is not as loud. God wants to roar into those heavenly realms. Have you seen my church? And whenever a Christian says, I don't really need the church. That means I've never really read the New Testament. 
You cannot be a Christian without the church. That is not control. That is not the church in its worst manifestations throughout history where a group of people at the top control everyone else and keep everything in darkness. That is just biblical truth. You cannot follow Jesus without the church. You cannot just make God be whatever you want him to be. He is who he is. Get with the program. He uses the church to declare his wisdom to the heavenly realms and to the world. And if the church is central to God's purpose, and it is, read the verse again. His eternal purpose was that through the church, he would show his wisdom. If the church is so central to the purposes of God, why would we ever allow it to be on the fringe of our lives? Why would we bounce from place to place? Sunday here, Sunday there, Sunday somewhere else, a month here, a month there. We have to find a place where we feel that we're in community, of course, and there may be changes along the journey. But why, do we, why is it such a fringe thing? Why do we get so upset so easily with the thing that God has placed at the center of his purposes? And Paul's suffering He's suffering because of the declaration he has made. And he says, don't be discouraged. He says, the fact that I'm suffering means the authorities, the powers, the principalities are under threat. The fact that they have had to put this little short man who was not an eloquent speaker and didn't look very impressive. The fact that they have put a chain on him means they are terrified of what he is proclaiming. They are terrified of it. And the whole passage, just get rid of the notion that Christianity is about scraping through life and making it to heaven when you die. The gospel is that God has already created a new community of people through the cross and the resurrection. And we are already part of it now. Stop sitting around waiting for something to happen. (laughs) It's happened There is further glory that is coming that we can't even comprehend in our finite minds. But God has created his new community. Get with the program and be part of it and love it and defend it in the name of Jesus. Paul in verse 14 finally gets back to his prayer. (laughs) Just digressed all over the place. You just hate it when preachers do that. Digresses all over the place, wanders around and then comes back to his point. Finally, how do you pray? How do you pray? Father, my will be done. (laughs) No. How do you pray? Paul says in verse 14, For this reason I kneel before the Father. I kneel before the Father. This this sort of blew me away this week. I love love the fact that 20 years of following Jesus and 20 years of reading the Word and reading books, still you'll just now and again, you'll you'll sit down and you'll read something bleary-eyed in the morning and it'll just blow you away. And you think about sharing it on WhatsApp. 
And then you think, no, keep it for the sermon. (laughs) (laughs) And I read this on Thursday morning from a guy called Tom Wright, and I would recommend him highly. Fantastic writer. He says, the idea of God as father goes right back to the time when Israel was in slavery and needed rescuing. Israel is my son, my firstborn, declared God to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. So let my people go. From then on, and listen to this church, this is why you say father. It's not because he's cozy and cuddly and you get up on his knee. From then on, to call on God as father was to invoke the God of the Exodus, the liberating God, the God whose kingdom was coming, bringing bread for the hungry, forgiveness for the sinner, and deliverance from the powers of darkness. That's class. Whenever I go to my knees and I say, Father, it's the God of the Exodus that I'm laying hold on. It's the God of power. It's the God who says, David is my son. You know, if if the enemy is giving me a hard time, it's the God who says, David is my son. Let my son go. And as you pray for others and you get on your knees on behalf of someone else and you lay hold on God for them and and you're asking God to to bless them and be with them. Say, for example, it's, it's Linda and I'm praying for her and I'm just asking God to be with her. God is at that moment, he's declaring to the enemy in response to my prayers, she is my daughter, let my daughter go. He's the God of deliverance. That's what father means. The first time in your Bible that he is referred to as father is is in that passage in Exodus 4 and he talks about his people as his son. He says, Israel is my son. That's your benchmark church for what the word father means. That's who you're laying hold on when you pray. When we come in here on a Tuesday night or on a Sunday night or, or whenever and we say the word father, Oh, let all that exodus. I'm talking to the one who parted the Red Sea for his people. I'm talking to the one who drowned Pharaoh's army for his people. I'm talking to the one who sent 10 plagues for his people. I'm talking to the one who provided food where there was no food for his people and was faithful to them despite their lack of faithfulness themselves. I'm talking to the one who meets with his people on the mountaintop. I'm talking to the one who guides his people with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. I'm talking to the one who hears the cries of his people and comes down to deliver them. Folks, let your praying change. Let the word Father just let it explode within you with Exodus imagery. That's who we're laying hold on. Get this picture in your head that as we're on our knees on a Tuesday night laying hold on him, he is declaring to the enemy, let my people go. Let them go. Love it. Love it. Read Tom Wright. And read John Stott as well. Name dropping all over the place today. John Stott commenting on, on what, how Paul prays here. Talks about the prayer stairs. How do you pray? Do you use scripture when you're praying? Do you use scripture when you're praying? If you don't, start doing it. Start taking Paul's prayers and pray them for one another. Put names in there. A month or two ago on a, on a Tuesday night, 
Here's another name for you. We've had, we've had Tom Wright and we've had John Stott and now we'll have Ruth Kennedy. <laughs> Ruth was praying in the prayer meeting on Tuesday night and I can't remember whether she the Bible open or whether she was praying for memory or what, but I realized she was praying scripture. And I thought, what is that? What is she praying? And, and I started hooking around and I, and I went to, to 1 Thessalonians 5 and she prayed 1 Thessalonians 5 for the church. And it was class. It was really good. It was really good. Praying scripture. Do you ever not know how to pray? You will not go wrong by opening this book, finding a psalm, finding one of Paul's prayers and praying that for the person or the people who are on your heart. How do you pray? There are four stairs, John Stott says, in in Paul's praying for these people. He prays, first of all, that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you ever pray that for anyone? Start doing it. (laughs) That's a great thing to pray for somebody. To pray that that would be the case. To pick anyone in the church and just pray that that would be the case for that person. What a prayer. Instead of just saying bless them and give them a good day. To pray that. He's going to the Father. He's praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts and that it would be through the Spirit. It's Trinitarian as always for Paul. And the Greek word for for Christ dwelling in our hearts is not a lodger. It's not somebody who's passing through for a few nights. Permanent residence. Permanent residence. And he is, he is praying for strength in the inner being. That's where character comes from. That's where character comes from. You want to pray for someone that they'd have the character of Jesus. Pray that for them. That they'd be strengthened in their inner man, in their inner woman. That they would have the character of Christ. That people would look at them and say, what's got into you? And it's not a case of what's got into you. It's a case of who has got into you. You take something as big as Jesus into you in permanent residence, you will change. You will change. And your character will change. One of the greatest problems, I think, in the church is is immense gifting and small character. We used to talk at Forge last year about, about character being like a truck. No, sorry. Gifting was the truck. Character was the bridge. And we used to talk about driving a 10-ton gift over a one-ton character. In other words, there are people who are immensely gifted, but their character is not able to carry their gift. And it's going to end in tears. There was a guy, actually, a friend of mine over there, and he spoke to me one day. He hadn't been walking with Jesus for that long, but boy, was he on fire. It was immense. Um, And he was a man of incredible gifting, just mind-boggling. In his previous life, so to speak, his, his daily consultancy fee was £6,000 a day. Right? He was at the top of his game and worked with the government and worked with massive companies. Amazing just what he did. Lost it all. All of it. Alcohol. Lost a whole lot. I'm going to get him to come over sometime and tell you the story. And he sat down and he said to me one day, I love this, he said, you know what, and this is not arrogant on his part, he says, David, he says, I have a huge gift. But I need people like you around me to constantly poke me about my character. Because otherwise I can't carry this gift. I thought that was good. 
the realization that you need people around you poking you. I poke people all the time, don't I? I poke people all the time, all the time. I always challenge people to love and to show grace. And so easy sometimes to say, well, I haven't been shown grace. I don't care. Show grace. Show love. Don't come to me looking at a pity party. Show grace and show love because no one can argue with that. How do you park your car on a Sunday morning? I don't care how other people park their cars. How do you park your car? Show grace. Show love. Be above reproach. Let nothing be done that brings brings slander on the name of Jesus or the church. Paul prays the first step or the first stair is that we would be strengthened in our inner man. Brilliant. The second one, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Great simple prayer to pray for somebody. Father, I pray for Tim today that he would be rooted and grounded in love. What a good prayer. What a good prayer. Rooted and grounded. This is not superficial. If Paul wants something to speak of depth, he'll talk about roots and foundations. Rooted and grounded. Love is the soil in which your life is rooted. It is the foundation on which your life is built. Do we love each other? I've been convicted lately that I'm too busy to love people. That I'm looking at a schedule for this week, and I know it's a big week for us with Christmas and all of that, but I'm looking at a schedule that has me out Sunday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and next Sunday night. And I feel God saying to me, David, when do you plan to love people? When do you plan to, to set a couple of extra spaces at your table and love people with a schedule like that? And there'll be people loved during that. There'll be people loved at the open night. There'll be people loved tonight as we sing carols together. But I just feel a challenge and I want to throw it out to the church to pray over it and mull over it. Is this church too busy to love? Sometimes we can get so active that we look at the people that are running side by side with us and we think, my goodness, it's been so long since we just loved each other for an hour over food. And actually took a bit of interest in each other's lives. There are about probably 40 adults who would call this their church. Do we need to be realistic about what we can do? And get a bit of focus on loving one another. Without love we're just a bunch of clanging cymbals. Without love all that town will hear is bang, crash, smash. Pray about that. Bring that to the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. I wonder, should we take a, a month or a couple of months during the year and just turn it into, you know, 60s hippies would love this, but just turn it into love season. All activity stops apart from Sunday mornings and Tuesday nights. All other activity stops for a month or two months. And what we do then is we love each other. And we open up our tables and we open up our homes and we just love each other. And stop running about like headless chickens from one thing to another. Yeah. Grieves me when we do that. Mm. Grieves me when I do that. Where's me out? You can lose your joy very quickly. Yes. And then every now and again you get a glimpse. You sit down with a few people and you just love them and spend time with them. And suddenly you think, ah, this is what it's about. Mm. This is what it's about. 
So he prays that we would be rooted and established in love. He prays the third step of his prayer stairs, according to Stott, is that you would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Oh, and by the way, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul says it is so high, so deep, so wide, so long. You could spend your whole life swimming in it and never even begin to understand it. Broad enough to encompass all of mankind. Long enough to last for all eternity. Deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. High enough to exalt that sinner up to the highest heaven. This love is incredible. Take time today to meditate on it. Chew on that verse. Chew on the expansiveness of it. And you know what? If we want to go forward in our exploration of the sheer magnitude of his love, notice a little phrase in there in that verse that you may have power and we want to know the width and the length and all the dimensions and the depth of this amazing love. But look at the first line there. Together with all the Lord's holy people. You can't grasp it on your own if you want to really embrace the love of Jesus and just dive right in you do it together it's beautiful you do it together this is a letter of unity it's a letter of community togetherness the love is vast and Paul loves not exaggerating but he loves just using extreme language when he's talking about God He's already said about his incomparably great power. He has said about the incomparable riches of his grace. We sang earlier, what heart could fathom such boundless grace? And now he talks about the love that surpasses knowledge. Just massive words. He's struggling for the words that he needs to describe God. And the last step of the stairs, and we're nearly there, is that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now think back to last week. Think about those temples. The tabernacle, Solomon's temple. What happened when they were finished? What happened when the temple was complete? You read Exodus 40, you read 1 Kings 8, you read that God filled the temple. And this is temple language again. That you may be filled with the fullness of God, that you as a people, as a temple, would be filled with his presence so that you could hardly stand up in it. Malachi 3 talks of a coming time now fulfilled when God would come again to his temple, not to bricks and mortar, but to a people and fill them. He did it in Acts. Jesus ascended into heaven and he poured out the spirit and that wind came and filled the church. The presence was back. How do you pray? Do you pray like that for people? That's a brilliant prayer. Chapter 1 at the end is a brilliant prayer. There's a brilliant prayer in Colossians 1. All through Paul's writings, you can just grab one of these and just that is a brilliant way to pray. And to expand the illustration that Stott has used there of the prayer stairs, you go up each step of the stairs. As you pray those things for people, it's like you're bringing them up with you. 
It's like you're bringing them up into the, into the holy place, into the presence of God as you pray those things for them. But as the chapter closes and as I finish, can God do that? It's almost as if Paul got to the top of the stairs and looked round and suddenly realized, boys, oh, we have gone a long way there in our prayers. We have asked for an awful lot. Those are big prayers. Big, big prayers. That's not just blessing them and give them a good day. These are big prayers that he is praying for people. Can God do it? As he looks back, have you ever gone up the hills? Me and Sarah went for a walk up the hills one day early in the year and we just kept on going. And every now and again, you looked around and thought, oh dear, <laughs> hadn't planned. We're up, I can't remember the name of it, the one beside Harris Gap. Oh, we, were, we, were, we were going up it and uh, you get up to the top and you suddenly realize, oh, we're rightly up here. <laughs> we maybe didn't plan to come as far as this, but we just kept going. And it's almost as if Paul in his prayer has kept going and now looks back at where he has climbed up and, and thinks, that was big. That was a lot to ask. Can God do it? And then he comes out with probably the most emphatic statement anywhere in all of literature. Can God do this? Can God do all that we ask? He can do all that we ask. Paul says, yeah, yeah, he can do all that we ask. In fact, he says we can, he can do all that we ask and he can do all that we think. And he takes it a bit further and he says, no, he can, do, he can do all that we ask. Not just what we ask or what we think, but all that we ask and all that we think. And then he says, that mm, doesn't maybe quite get it. And he says, he can do more than all that we ask or think. And then he's like, nah, nah, it still doesn't describe enough his, his ability and his power. So he says, he can do abundantly more than all that we can ask or think. And he's still not happy. And he tucks in another word, and a rare occasion that I will quote from, from the King James Version, but it gets this verse better than any other version. Exceedingly, abundantly more than all we can ask or think. Another writer, who was it? It was F.F. F. Bruce. He said, this is a super superlative. <laughs> it's just like, it, you know, you write that in school, your English teacher's going to have a fit, right? Because it's just this heaping up of terms. But Paul gets away with it because he's talking about God. And he has prayed this huge prayer for people. And he says, God can do it. Have a look at verse 20 and think, what might God do in you? What might he do through you? Just dream for a moment. What could he do with me? What could he do with us? And then dwell on the fact that the, the, the greatest thing that we possibly think of that he could do with us for his glory is actually very small compared to what he could actually do. Whatever we think of that he could do is nothing compared to what he can do. He can do exceedingly abundantly. So we need to raise our expectations. We need to pray in a way that is greedy for the kingdom. Not greedy for ourselves, but greedy for the kingdom. And believe that God wants to do so much more than we've ever even thought that he wants to do. And start to lay hold on him for it. And it's according to his power that works in us. Paul has obsessed with power in Ephesians and he obsesses with power throughout his letters. And the word power is almost interchangeable for him with the word spirit. 
When he talks about spirit, he's talking about power. And when he's talking about power, he's talking about the spirit. And it's through that power that we can do, that God can do these things through us. So he has revealed a mystery that he holds up his church in the heavenly realms and he shoves them into the face of the enemy and he says, look what I've done. Have you seen my servant, the church? And we have seen how he is a father and how that term should not be just cuddly and cozy, but should invoke on us pictures of exodus power. And the love and the power that we finish with at the end. What an amazing chapter again. What an amazing book. What an amazing Jesus. I love it. I love him. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for just the wonders that we've read of, Lord. You are an amazing God, a wonderful Father. And Lord, I pray that everyone will take something from this amazing chapter, Lord, that they will take something away and just lay hold on it and say, Wow, what a God, what a Savior. I ask, Lord, that you would inject power into our prayer. Thank you, Father, for the appetite for prayer that you are creating and developing and increasing among us. Lord, I pray the next time somebody says the word Father in this place in a prayer meeting, our minds will just go bonkers with exodus, with power, with deliverance, with enemies destroyed, with people provided for. God, you are so good. How one word in your word can cause us to just marvel. Lord, help us to be the church. Help us to be the ones through whom you can show your glory, Lord, and declare your manifold wisdom. I love you, Jesus. I love your church. And we prayed you would build your church and that you would give us great faith to believe for more. In Jesus' name, amen.